Uh, well, let's go ahead and look at Jonah chapter 3, uh, starting in verses 1, and uh, we're going to go through uh, verse 9 this morning. I'm going to ask, I know we just sat down, we're going to stand back up for the reading of God's Word, and then you'll have plenty of time to sit down. So, this is what the text says, it says in chapter 3, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. On the first day, Jonah started into the city, and he proclaimed, Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. The Ninevites believed God. They declared a fast, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence." Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Father God, we come before you and we are reminded of your truth today that you are worthy of our praise. Lord, we do come bowing before you, giving you the adoration and the praise that you deserve. Lord, we come to a text that speaks about change in the life of a city a city that was hell-bent on living opposite of your word and your decrees, and yet through the message of one is changed, and we see the great fruits of repentance that come as a result of it. Lord, we think of the word revival when we think of this story. Lord, it's not just our cities that need revival, uh, but it's our churches, Father. We know that without revival in the in the uh, believer's life, there will never be uh, revival in the life of unbelievers. So, Lord, change our hearts. Revive us that we may uh, be courageous and passionate about spreading the good news of Jesus Christ so that people will know that you are there and you demand change. Change our lives this morning so we can be the change agents you've called us to be. In Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Well, we've been in this series that we've entitled The Fugitive, looking at the life of this reluctant missionary named Jonah. And just as a way of review, as we've been reviewing each week, we come to the place in the story after Jonah has heard from God a first time, runs away from God, heads in the opposite direction, and God brings all kinds of calamity and struggles that find the pinnacle of those struggles uh, with him being thrown overboard into the Mediterranean Sea and then being swallowed up at the moment that he's about to lose his life and drowning that he is swallowed by a great fish. For three days and three nights, Jonah's in the great fish. And during that time, he cries out to the Lord, a prayer that is recorded in Jonah chapter 2. And we come to Jonah chapter 3, and at the end of, or at the beginning of chapter 3, end of chapter 2, we see that the great whale, after three days and three nights, after Jonah gets right with God, vomits Jonah out onto dry land. And sometime after that point, Jonah is given a second command to go and preach to the Ninevites the message that God had for Jonah. 
And it tells us this time that he does it. Without delay, he goes and he preaches the message that God had for him that was going to change Nineveh. And so we come today to the point of the response of the Ninevites. What would they do with this message? This vicious and angry people. What would their response be to this one man, this visitor who enters into the city of Nineveh? What would their response be as he proclaims the message that God had for them? Well, we're going to see that in verses 5 through 9. It's a result that we would have never saw coming if we would have not known the end of the story. So what are we to pull from a text like this? It's very difficult Because in almost all the commentaries and all the sermons that I saw preached on this text, the word revival came out. But if you think about the word revival, usually we use the terminology of revival speaking of Christians. Those who maybe have become dormant. Those who maybe have become distracted with the things of this world. And all of a sudden, as a result of a spiritual renewal, revival breaks out. A a committing to God, a committing to confess sin, and people begin to get excited about their faith. Well, that's not true of the Ninevites. The Ninevites did not have a relationship with God. There was no reviving going on of any kind of spiritual fervor that they had lost. They had no spiritual fervor. They were lost in their trespasses and sin. And so there's uh, a twofold, if you will, uh, application to this message this morning. Number one, it's to us. We need revival. And we see the steps of revival done through a people that were as uh, sinful and as wicked as the people of Nineveh. That the king himself gives words to us as believers today of how we can be revived by God. And the steps that we need to take to make right. But then there's the other thought is, is that God still, and we need to be, hear this and understand it, that God still does amazing things. And just as God brought incredible change into the life of the Ninevites, that God still wants to see that change, not just in the area of Nineveh, but in Sugar Grove and Aurora and the entire Fox Valley area, and even to the uttermost parts of the world. And He wants you and I to be those change agents. Just as He called Jonah to do that, He calls us to do it as well. In 2006... Uh, a man by, John, by the name John Mayer came out with a song uh, that was on a debut CD. And the CD, uh, or the song on the CD was Waiting on the World to Change. It was one of his top uh, songs that have ever uh, been on the Billboard charts. I believe it finished up at number three uh, on the top of 40. And the song was about his discontent about where the world was heading. And he talks about in a couple verses of the song, he says, I wanted to see change, but as I tried to change, I learned it was impossible. There was impossibilities. The world's too big. The problems that we face are too large and too grand for one person to change. Even, he says, a generation to change. And so he comes to a a place in his life where he says, I no longer am going to try to change this thing, but I'm just going to wait on the world to change. And so the chorus just keeps saying, we're waiting on the world to change. And you say, Tim, why why would you bring up a secular song uh, in a sermon uh, to illustrate something? Because many of us as Christians are just like John Mayer. 
You see, John had come to the conclusion that change was impossible. That no matter what he did or what he tried to do, that he was never going to change the world around him. It was too big, too too cumbersome. And that's what we as Christians do. As Christians, we come to the realization, we look at the world, we look at the problems, we look at the mass of people, billions upon billions of people, and we give up. We throw our hands in the air and we say, it's too difficult. It's too big. What can one person like me do? What can one church like Village do to change the world? And so just like John Mayer, what we do is we say, we'll just wait for the world to change. We'll just leave it, uh, whether it's to God or to somebody else, we'll sit back and we'll sit on the sidelines and allow someone else or something else to change the world. So what are we to do? Well, so many of us are so happy and content with the status quo. We're so willing just to sit back and do our church thing and pursue the things of this world. And as long as we've got just a little of God, a little of Jesus in our lives, it's enough. But the Bible makes it clear that's not enough. That we are to obey the call just as Jonah was given a call. We too as Christians are given a call to go and to share the good news of Jesus Christ with all people, not just the ones we think that might get saved, but the ones that may be the most difficult to save, like the Ninevites in the book of Jonah. So how are we to get that uh, fire back? How are we to, in essence, have revival break out in our own hearts so we can see revival be carried out in the world around us? Well, it involves three things. And the first thing I want us to look at this morning is that if we want to see the world change, and we don't want to sit on the sidelines to watch it, but if we want to be a part of it, number one, we must recognize the crisis facing our world that demands revival. We must recognize the crisis. Now, we all know that back in, it probably started in September, of course, the stock market crashed in October of last year. And what we heard from our politicians and our pundits and our our business executives and even our bankers, they said, trouble is coming. This is the worst thing that we have faced since the Great Depression. You need to understand how bad it really is going to get. I remember, and I don't mean to, to point them out, but I remember having a, a meeting with, with Stan Free. Uh, we were having a financial meeting about the church, and we were talking about budgets and all that for the upcoming year. And I remember at one point, and you know, Stan is a, is a manly man, but I remember at one point, he was so passionate, I could see his eyes were watering. He says, you guys don't know how bad it's going to get. And he was right. It has gotten bad. And he saw the trouble coming. And we've heard it time and time again that we're in a crisis. And, and some are saying we're, we're coming out of it and we've uh, been able to uh, divert uh, any kind of mass uh, depression that would have taken place because of some of the things that we've done and, and, and maybe just by some good luck. Who knows? But we realize that there was a crisis. And until we recognize the crisis around us, we would have never been a part of making a solution to try to fix it. Because we would have been oblivious to what was going on. And yet, when we look at evangelism and Christianity, there's a lot of people that fail to recognize the crisis that our world is in. You see, we need to remember, and you say, well, Tim, this is elementary, Tim, this isn't even in the text. Well, it's important we recognize this before we even get to the text. Because who cares about Nineveh? Who cares about what Jonah did if Nineveh was all okay? 
if everything was fine in Nineveh and there was no issue of, of change needing to take place. But we recognize, because God's word says, Nineveh was on its way to hell. And we need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded that our neighbors and our co-workers and our friends are walking and heading towards destruction. And we need to recognize that. We need to look deep into their eyes when we see them. And we need to recognize that they are blinded by the uh, lies of the devil. And they themselves now are pursuing a life that will end in destruction. You see, if we don't recognize that, if we don't begin to see that, then we will never have a fervor for the gospel. Last night after uh, working, I uh, made it over to uh, my 15th year class reunion. And uh, I debated on whether to go, and uh, Amanda was going to go with me, but uh, she was up at our uh, at my in-laws uh, and uh, wasn't going to be able to make it. I said, you know, I- I'm not going to go. And then, then there was this, just this sense, I'm going to regret it if I don't. If I don't go, I'm going to ask all the what-ifs, what are these people doing and stuff. So I said, I'll go for, a, for an hour or so. And I headed over there. And when I came then after talking with everybody and enjoying uh, just some dialogue with people, I came home with a realization that my class is on its way to hell. And I don't mean that in a, in a funny way. It may, it may come off a bit like that. But my class is hurting. And I began to recognize that people live very difficult lives. Now, many of them are as a result of broken relationships and, and, and problems that have come as a result of addictions and things like that. And I don't think that uh, my class is a lot different from others, but, but I, I got to be honest with you. Uh, I shared just, I walked in, I was one of the last people to be there. I was sociably late, if you will. And uh, I remember walking in and, and they, uh, uh, they were surprised I had lost all my hair and uh, they said I looked a lot different and, and, and they said, well, what's going on with your life? And I began to share about what God's doing in my life, what God's doing here, what God's doing in my family. And people were stunned. Now, I don't think I painted a picture that is uh, so rosy. You are aware, and, and I'm surely aware of it, that Amanda and I have uh, trials and difficulties. But I, I would say God has been so very good to us. And yet what I recognized as I saw the people... And as I talked with them one-on-one, I'm going to tell you something that's amazing. There were only three people there at my class reunion that are married to this day. Most all have divorced. Most have uh, their children all over the place. Some have been divorced uh, once or twice. Some have uh, addictions and problems. I, and I began, as I, as I walked away, and I had some spiritual conversations with, with a couple individuals. And as I walked away... I recognized probably for the very first time in a long time how lost people are. And my heart was broken because these are kids that I spent years getting to know and I find them completely lost and on their way to hell. And I spent time last night as I was going through my message just praying for individuals in my class name by name. Lord, give me an opportunity. Lord, continue to open doors. Lord, I I didn't spend much time with this individual at school, but boy, we had a great conversation last night. Allow, Allow that conversation to continue and that relationship to continue because people are lost. And I I don't want to be a part of a world that isn't, uh, that's lost and, and not doing something about it. And so we have to recognize, and this is something that Jonah did not recognize, was how lost people are. 
You know, Jesus looked out at Jerusalem right before the Passion Week was going to begin. And, and there's a painting that I, I, I love. One of my fam, uh, favorite paintings of all uh, of Jesus is one where he's overlooking Jerusalem. And of course, the passage comes, I believe, from Matthew 27. And Jesus weeps over the city of Jerusalem. And he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I want to gather you like a hen gathers its chicks. And then he says, but you, you kill the prophets and you will not believe. And he weeps over the lostness of the city. When was the last time you wept over your neighborhood? You wept over your city. You wept over your workplace. Where you recognize that these weren't just a bunch of people living life with you, but these are people that you have direct contact with and without a, 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 a someone to go and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to, the moment they die, they will stand before God guilty and condemned to hell. Have you wept over that city? Have you wept over that employee or employer that you work for? You see, we need to recognize it. The problem is many times we don't recognize it for a couple reasons. Number one, apathy. Write that down in your outline somewhere. Apathy. We just get busy. We get busy doing other things. And the last thing we think about is our relationship with God and, and our call to evangelism. And so we find other things, other pursuits that are more important. And as a result of that, we don't even have time to recognize uh, the importance of uh, our towns, the importance of our neighbors in preaching the good news. Other times we think in this apathetic thinking that a missionary will do it. And that's what we pay money for at, at Village. What we do is we send out people to do the ministry. That's what we pay the staff to do. It's their job. That's their calling. But of course we know that the role of the staff here at Village Bible Church is to equip you, the people of God, to do the works of service. You're not uh, to uh, watch us do ministry, but we are to equip you so that you can do ministry side by side us. So apathy is the first thing. Another thing that happens is we believe the lies of the devil. We begin to think that God can't change the lives of people. If I was to take a human standpoint to my class reunion yesterday, I would see a bunch of messed up people who there's no chance that God is going to change their lives. That God, man, some of these people have really have messed things up. Or they're so cold to God. Why, why would I ever think that God would change them? And yet Nineveh is a reminder that God can change the most vicious of people. The Apostle Paul is a reminder that God can take a murderer, one who hates Jesus Christ, and in a, if you will, a Damascus minute or a second, change his life and bring him to his knees. Do you really believe that God could change our cities? Do you really believe that God could change your neighbor? Do you really believe that God could change the person you work next to every day? That God could change your school this year? Do we really believe that God could do it? We need to be reminded that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That the things that were done back in the day can be done today. If we get serious about God and get on our knees and call urgently on Him to change the lives of people. Still others find themselves on the sidelines, not recognizing the lostness of people, the crisis that's facing them, because of fear. Oh, what might people say? I have to be honest with you. As I went to that reunion last night, there was a sense of fear. What are people going to say? I've kind of got a messed up resume. Huh? Well, what are you doing, Tim? Well, I'm catering. What else are you doing? Well, I'm a pastor. Well, that doesn't make sense. 
And there was a part of me saying, you know what, just don't ask unless they ask you a question about it. And then the Lord said, no. And the scripture came to mind, you deny me before men, I'll deny you before my father. That don't sound like much fun, so I'm not going to deny you, God. Let's, let's talk. And people were open and they were, and they were excited to hear about it. And, and one person said, that's, that's just great. You know, Tim, you never pursued that type of career. That was never your thought. What, what got you there? I'm like, Lord, thank you for the opportunity. I began to share what God was doing in my life, but it comes with fear. When Jonah walks into Nineveh, there had to be great fear in his life. Him versus a, a couple hundred thousand people. That's not good odds. I don't care in what game you're playing. He was the only one. He was the only guy who believed in God in the city. Do you feel that way in your workplace or in your school? You're the only one. And fear comes into your life and you say, you know what? It's too scary to do such a thing. Well, until we begin to recognize the crisis at hand, we will never recognize that we need to get beyond our fears and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. The final thing is, is hatred. This is where Jonah really struggles because Jonah hated those that God had called him to. He hated the Ninevites. We've talked about this over and over again. This guy was uh, an Old Testament racist. If you weren't Jewish, he didn't like you. And he especially didn't like people that were enemies of the Jewish people. And so he hated them. And there's some of us here today who've got Jonah within us. That because we see what people are doing, uh, what we begin to say is, is, I don't like you very much. You're a bad influence on me. I don't like what you're doing. And instead of hating the sin, we begin to hate the sinner. You see, that's what Jonah was doing. He was hating the sinners instead of the sins that they were committing. And his hatred was so great <clears throat> that what he began to do is write off people. We talked about that a couple weeks ago. We began to write off people instead of loving them and bringing them the gospel. I know this is elementary. And you may think, Tim, why, why are you on the soapbox? Because uh, Jonah doesn't matter. This story doesn't matter unless we understand point one. People are on their way to hell. C.T. Studd, the great missionary, said that he doesn't want, he didn't want to be a part of a church on Main Street, but he wanted a mission an inch from the gates of hell. Can we say that with him this morning? That we don't just want to be a church on Route 47. That's great. But we want to be a last bastion of hope for sinners on their way to hell. That the people, the unbelievers in this place, in this, in this area that we call our home, would see us as a hospital to make people well. To be a place where people can be born again. Until we recognize that need, we will never see what God wants us to see. So it starts with that, a recognition of the crisis that our world faces. Number two, we must then remember the characteristics of revival. If we want to be a part of a revival ministry, we've got to know what it is. Now, there is no real uh, set, defined answer to what revival is. There's so many different uh, definitions out there. It would be hard to just put one together. But of course, if we looked at the root word of revival, revive, it means taking something that is dormant or, or dead and bringing it back to life. And, and that's probably the best uh, understanding of what revival is, it taking something dead or dormant and bringing it to life in the spiritual realm. Now, we have seen many revivals in our land. We've seen many revivals take place. 
Of course, we know of the Great Awakenings from a couple hundred years ago. But the amazing thing is, is that while these revivals are great, uh, what we learn is, is unless we get to the heart of the matter, all's we are, all we are doing is uh, creating uh, a bunch of excitement. And we shouldn't just be about excitement. A lot of churches will have what they call revival meetings. And the idea there is that we're going to create revival. We need to understand something. We can never create revival. It's not a program. You can't buy it over the internet and, and put it into practice. And then all of a sudden people will, will change. It's all from God. God is the, is the one who produces and brings about revival. The question is, will we be a part of that revival? Jonah fought his participation in the revival of Nineveh. So what is this revival all about? Well, look at the text now. Let's get into the text and look at what it has to say. It says, on the first day, Jonah's going into the city, and he proclaims, 40 more days in Nineveh will be overturned. Now, we don't know exactly how Noah did this. I'll talk in a couple moments about this idea of proclaimed in the Hebrew and what it could mean and some of the implications that come and some of the things that need to be a part of our own proclaiming of the gospel. But we need to understand that he goes into the city. There's a sense that probably what he spoke was Aramaic. Aramaic was a common trade language uh, that would be going on. Of course, the Ninevites, uh, being Assyrians, would have spoken uh, Aramaic at that time. And so there's no question that Jonah was able to speak to them uh, in their language. And he enters into the city and he begins to proclaim, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. And I wonder if his thought was, they're going to kill me. They're going to uh, call me a, an idiot. They're going to, what are they going to do? I, I have no idea. And yet the text says, look at, look at what happens. Their response, these people that have never heard the gospel, never heard about God before. It says, the Ninevites believed. It doesn't say Jonah, but notice what it says. They believed God. The thing that we need to understand is that a true revival begins with people believing God. Not a preacher, not a proclaimer, not you who are witnessing to your friends or your neighbors, but it is us carrying a message. And if we remember, the message was from who? It was the message that God gave Jonah. It wasn't Jonah's, it was God's. And when they articulated the message, or when he articulated the message, they believed God. As if Jonah was speaking on behalf of God, which he was. And they believe God. This word believed uh, is an important word because we see the first characteristic of revival, of true revival, is the salvation of souls. Write that in your outlines. It says they believed. Here's this angry, this sinful people who hear an outsider share a message that they've never heard before. And what is their response? They believe. In the Hebrew, it means to be firm, to trust, to stand steadfast. It's used many times in the Old Testament. In Ezekiel 4, 31, Aaron and Moses come to the uh, chief uh, leaders of Israel and they articulate early on in the Exodus story that God is going to deliver the people. And the text says that the leaders of Israel believed the message that Moses and Aaron had brought. The idea was, is it wasn't just, okay, yeah, God may deliver us, but they believed it. They were firm. They were steadfast in the promise that God had for them. It's the same word that we see in Jonah. 
Another important text that we see uh, is uh, in Psalm 116. In Psalm 116, we see that the psalmist is looking at all that the people of the world are talking about and that he shouldn't be following God and shouldn't be pursuing the promises of God. Yet in the middle of that psalm, he says, I will uh, believe in your word. I will believe in you. And the idea there is that he believes going to take God at his word. He's going to remain steadfast in the promises of God. And in the next verse, he says that all men will be shown to be liars. And so he says, I'm going to take God on his word. And everybody else who denies what God says are liars. But the most important passage of scripture where we see this is in the book of Genesis. So turn there for a moment. Genesis chapter 15. If you don't know where Genesis is at, go back to the table of contents and go to the right a couple pages and you'll find the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 15. We'll look at verse 6. God is speaking with his servant Abraham and he's giving his covenant before Abraham. And we'll start give some context to this. Uh, let's start in, uh, let's start in just in verse one. After this, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, O sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliarzar of uh, Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. Then the word of the Lord came to him. The man will not be your heir, but a son is coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said, So shall be your, so shall your offspring be. And notice this very important verse that again is reminded of us in the book of Romans chapter 4. Abraham believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This is an important thing because we see that God speaks to Abram. And of course, Abraham then listens uh, to the word of the Lord. He doesn't just listen. That God is going to make Abraham uh, the great father of the nations. That his offspring would go uh, greater than the stars in the sky. And it says that Abram believed God. And that belief in God was credited to him as righteousness. There's a lot of debate on whether the Ninevites actually believed God, if you will, enough or, or showed their um, uh, repentance enough that they were truly saved. I've gone back and forth, but I have to tell you today, and I may a week from now tell you something different, but I, I have to believe that what we know of what they've done and what they did showed true repentance true belief now some say well they did it because they were afraid of the calamity that god was coming they also look at the the struggles that uh, nineveh has you know only 40 years later would nineveh find itself being as vile and despicable as they had been before and they say well maybe they didn't get it we don't know but it seems to show us that they believed god and in the same belief that God or that uh, Abraham had was credited to him as righteousness, and so we believe that for the same as the uh, 
as the Ninevites. A couple things that uh, some commentators said. Wayne Strickland said this, It is quite possible that this belief was not only satisfactory, but of great, brought great joy to the righteous judge in heaven. Douglas Stewart said that there is no doubt that they took God's message seriously and took God at his word and believed what he said. God was calling to a people to believe, and they did. And we can't have revival without people believing God. We can't have people being changed unless they believe God. But for that to happen, Romans ten seventeen tells us that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of God. We can't expect to change the world unless we are willing to take the message of the cross of Christ to the world so that they can hear it and put their faith and trust in it. The next thing that we see is there's sorrow over sin. It says that the Ninevites believed God. And notice verse 5. They declared a fast and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Let's stop there for a moment. It says that they uh, declared a fast. Of course, the fast would be a set period of time where people uh, would uh, give themselves over uh, to not eating anything. And that's what they do. And the reason why this was done, not just in Hebrew culture, but in many Middle Eastern cultures, was the idea to show sorrow over a a transgression or sin. And so right away, no one tells them to do this. Nowhere in the message that Jonah gives is there any call for fasting. They just did it. It just seems to become uh, just a response to the message. It says that they declared a fast, they did not eat, and it goes on to say that they put on sackcloth. So the idea here is they say, God, our physical needs aren't as important as what we need to address with you, and so we are going to uh, fast food, and we're going to give that time and energy and, and that priority to getting right with you. That's what fasting is all about. The idea of setting a priority with God for a series, a, a season of time to be more important than your physical needs. But they go on and they put on sackcloth. The idea of sackcloth was the closest thing we would know as the old burlap uh, potato sacks. Something very coarse. It usually was made of goat's hair. And anybody who wore it was miserable. Have you ever wore uh, something uh, that maybe has caused um, a reaction? Uh, maybe something that just doesn't doesn't sit right. I've got a couple shirts. Uh, I got a I got a extra large neck, and there are some shirts that I wear that just absolutely drive me nuts. And it's amazing. Just just one part of of the shirt can make you so unbelievably miserable. And yet that's what sackcloths were for. They were to be used to remind us of of the miserable status that we had, that we found ourselves in. And so, again, without any warning or any call to do this, the, the people hear the message and they start with a contrite heart to say, Lord, God, we know you're coming, we know your judgment is at hand, and we're just going to get right with you. And there's no response uh, from God. They just, this is what they do. And they begin to show their heart condition by living out in the um, outward uh, appearance to show the world where they're at. But it doesn't end there. Because notice, the next thing about true revival is it resulted in sweeping change within a society. 
Now notice what is said. This isn't just a couple people. We could have expected that. That even in a terrible city like Nineveh, uh, there would have been a couple seekers. A couple people would have said, yeah, I've been waiting for this message. I, I'm excited. And maybe they might have thought about starting a church or something like that. But that's not the case. It says that it, it goes well beyond anything we would have imagined. Notice what it says. They declared a fast and all of them, from greatest to least, and put on sackcloth. Now notice in verse 6, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. What would his response be? Is he going to be angry? His people are following this new missionary that entered into the town? No, listen to what it says. He took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in ashes. And then he issued a proclamation. By the decree of the king and his nobles, he goes on to say, Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let them, everyone, call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion. So what does the king do? The king does more than what the people individually did. He gets up and he puts on sackcloth. Again, the same kind of outward expression of your miserable reality before a holy God. But then he sits down in dust. It's the idea of, the, of course, the sackcloth and ashes. And what he does is he says, I'm miserable. I'm miserable and I want to show the world that I'm no longer the king, but there is someone greater than I. And to him, I am just mere dust. I'm nothing in comparison to this man. Or I'm sorry, to this God. I'm just a mere man. But he goes on and he says, all right, I want us to declare a fast. Well, they said, well, we're doing that. He says, you're not doing enough. Because the fast that's talked about earlier in the passage is that uh, the prohibition of eating. But notice what the king says. He says, I don't want you to eat or drink. Oh, wait a minute. You can go with, I can even go without food for a couple days. But water? That seems like a little overboard, doesn't it? He even says, I don't want you to taste anything. Don't, don't put anything in your mouth. You know how dry your mouth can get if you, if you haven't eaten or, or been able to drink anything? And he's saying nothing. There should be nothing. You should taste nothing. We want to give all our priority over to God. But he doesn't stop there. He says, all of you, greatest to least, humans and animals alike. Have you ever been around a uh, six-month-old who hasn't eaten every two hours? You know the pain and suffering that parents face because of that child not getting its food? This decree was for everybody. Think about the screaming and the wailing that was going on. But it doesn't just stop there. It wasn't just a bunch of toddlers. You know, I would have hated if there had been church during that time to be in the nursery schedule that week. No food. Good luck. But it goes beyond that. And they say, your livestock, animals, they don't get anything either. And he says, on top of all that, I want everybody to have sackcloth on them. So those babies, no more nice little snuggy blankets. You're getting a potato sack. And they're crying and they're murmuring. And then the cows and all the livestock are angry. Have you ever heard a cow that's hungry? I worked for a couple weeks uh, when I was in high school on a farm. Just a couple weeks. I'm no farmer. But man, I had to, I had to feed the, uh, the cows and the pigs. And man, if they were hungry that moment that they knew food was coming, they, especially the cows, they would just, just make these moaning noises. It's, it's so odd. And they were hungry. 
feed us. And think about in Nineveh, the amount of cries and murmurs that were going on. And the king says, we do this. Why? Because we don't know. Let's show God how sorrowful we are over our sin. And God may still relent because of his compassion. And so there's this idea that we need to be sorrowful over our sins. The Ninevites give us a beautiful picture of what that looks like. And they go as far as they can. They make decrees about it. This was such a sweeping revival in the land that it even involved their laws. Now let me just tell you something. Do we truly believe that if we go and proclaim the message of Christ, and I want you to be honest about this, do you really believe that we could change our cities? that we could change the county, that we could change the United States and the world for Jesus Christ. Do we really believe it? Do we really believe that if we carry the message as Jonah did and begin to get out and work in the world around us, that there may even be laws one day, we can't think of this even now, but that there would be laws one day that our president would get up and he would say, all right, here's the state of the union. We're a bunch of sinners. Everybody recognize that? And we, and we were told God's gonna, God's gonna overthrow us unless we get right with Him. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna get right with God. And so for the next days, nobody's gonna eat a thing. Nobody's gonna drink a thing. And I want you all to urgently call on God. You see, as believers, we say, come on, that will never happen. And we fall prey to one of the things I talked about in our first point. We say it can't happen. Is God the God of the possible? Or is God the God of the impossible? Can't God do exceedingly abundantly more than we could ever ask for or imagine? We need to understand that and recognize that because that's what Jonah sees. He sees a revival breakout that changes society. But how do we get there? What are we to do? How do we become a modern day Jonah? It involves one other thing and that is responding It involves responding by being the conduit of revival. Now, some of you may not know that word, conduit. Literally what it is, is conduit is, uh, if you will, a pipe that uh, is able to hold something else. You could use the word conduit. It wouldn't be the right terminology. You could use it for any of your plumbing in your home. Your pipes are the conduit by which the water flows in and out of your home. Uh, uh, wire, if you will, is a conduit because it, it, through the wire, sends the ability for the electricity to go from one place to another. It's just the channel. It's just the pipe. It's just the way to get from point A to point B. But it in of itself is not the thing uh, within itself. So what, what do I mean by that? What I mean is, is that Jonah was the conduit. He was the pipeline of the gospel. Jonah was not the gospel. You and I are not the gospel. All we are are the uh, heralds, the proclaimers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are the ones that bring it from point A to point B. It's not, an, it's not something that ends with us, but we take it from point A, from where God brought it to us, to another group of people. Jonah was the conduit of God's message from Israel and he was sent all the way to go to Nineveh to proclaim that message. And so he's that conduit, but how do we see that all get played out? How do we begin to change the world by being that conduit? 
We need to proclaim something. Notice what it says in the text. We go back a little bit. It says, on the first day, Jonah started into the city and he proclaimed. This word proclaimed in the Hebrew is a pretty generic term, but it's used different ways. The first one is, is that, you know, some of your translations will say he cried out. It gives the idea that this wasn't Jonah walking to the city. Forty days or Nineveh will be overturned. What was that, Jonah? Forty days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's not what he did. Most likely what he did as he entered into the city on that uh, first day, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. I want everybody to hear it. 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. He proclaimed it. He announced it. He cried it out. But to have that be a part of our message, for us to do that, a couple of things need to be characteristic of the preaching and the proclamation that we're a part of. Number one, it needs to be courageous. I talked about this when I talked about fear. We cannot be afraid. We cannot be fearful of what the message or the people that the message goes to might do to us. What may transpire? Jonah had every reason to be afraid, every reason to worry about the result, but he was courageous. He walks into a city of a couple hundred thousand and he announces not worrying about anything of what people would say or do and he declares the message that God gives to him. Adrian Rogers said this when he talked about the boldness of proclaiming God's truth to others. He said this, it is better for us to divide by truth, to be divided by truth than to be united in air. It is better for us to speak the truth that hurts than heals, than falsehood that comforts and then kills. It is not love and is not friendship if we fail to declare to our neighbors, friends, and loved ones the whole counsel of God. It is better to be hated for telling the truth than to be loved for telling a lie. It is better to stand alone with the truth than to be wrong with the multitudes. Do you feel that way this morning? Can you agree with Adrian Rogers and say, I would rather stand by myself for the gospel of Jesus Christ than stand with the crowd and the lies of the devil. It's going to take courage. It's going to mean that we're going to have to stand strong amidst troubled times. Next, the message needs to be compelling. The message is a message of life and death. He says, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. The idea here is destruction is coming. And you need to change. This is an issue of heaven and hell, life and death. He proclaims a message that would compel the hearts of the people, the listeners in Nineveh, to stop. It would incite a response. In your sharing of the gospel, do you incite a response? Now, that doesn't mean being unduly um, harsh or... or um, passionate, uh, that sends a negative response to people. But if you were here during the um, second service last week, amidst many unbelievers, you heard me respond by not just saying, you know, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and you just keep living the way you want to. No, because that's not the gospel. The gospel says that we're all sinners. And God says, my wrath is coming. In fact, you're objects of my wrath right now. And if you don't change, and if you don't respond, then the only thing you can expect is a fiery judgment in a place called hell. You say, but Tim, there are visitors. I would rather be counted with God and offend through his message than make people feel good 
and send them out thinking that they're all right with God and then stand before that God and learn that they're not. We have a message and it needs to be compelling. What a message we are given. Next, it needs to be confrontational. Jonah uses the word overturned. He says, man, God's going to bring some changes. God's going to change who you are. It was confronting to them. It was a message of judgment. It was a message that was going to grip their hearts. But you see, in our world today, in our pulpits today, we preach about all this great stuff about God, and we never speak about His judgment. We speak about His goodness and His love. We talk about, all oh, I'm okay, you're okay, everybody's okay, instead of proclaiming the message that God is coming, and He's going to be doing some overturning. He's going to be doing some changing, whether you like it or not. One person once said, Noah's message from the steps going up to the ark was not, something good is about to happen to you. Amos was not confronted by the high priest of Israel for proclaiming confession is possession. Jeremiah was not put into the pit for preaching, I'm okay, you're okay. Daniel was not put in the lion's den for telling the people possibility thinking will move mountains. John the Baptist was not forced to preach in the wilderness and eventually be beheaded because he preached, smile, God loves you. The two prophets of the tribulation will not be killed for preaching God is in his heaven and all is right with the world. Do we recognize and understand that our message, which is foolishness to the world, is going to confront the hearers that we proclaim to? So confront it. Confront it. Speak truth. Speak God's word. Don't confront it with your thinking. Don't confront it with your idea of religion or life, but confront it with God's word. Always remembering one thing, it must reflect God's compassion. We need to always make sure that this truth that we declare, that there's compassion. In the, the giving of the sermon, 40 days and Nineveh will be overturned. Nineveh is giving a, given a period of time. Now there's no assurance that if they change, God's going to change his outcome. They say, who knows? Maybe God might turn from their, if we turn from our evil ways, maybe God will relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Maybe God might change. Maybe God might, might be willing to show us uh, some real opportunities to continue to live. And that's the gospel. The gospel is, yes, judgment is coming. Yes, hell is your destination. But it doesn't have to be that way. Because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. You preach and proclaim that God's judgment is coming. But make sure that you don't just be a fire and brimstone preacher who never says, but God so loved the world. And when we proclaim that, we proclaim the compassion, the salvation that God gives. And that is where revival takes place. Are you one who desires to see revival? It begins with us. God desires to see men come to salvation. We can be a part of that as a church and as a people. But it means that we must get right with God. We must follow the framework that the people of Nineveh set before us to be sorrowful over our sins and to allow sweeping change not only in the lives of our church but in our own lives so that we are willing to do the good and pleasing will of our Father in heaven. So we must ask God to revive us. We must ask God to change us, to take away the issues of apathy in our life, the fear and the hatred that we have and to give ourselves over to God and say, God, revive us. 
Revive us so that we can be the conduit that sends the gospel to not only uh, the people around me, but to the uttermost parts of the world. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you. And Lord, I pray that you would revive us this morning. Lord, there can be no revival of the souls of unbelievers until there's a revival of the people of God. I pray that you would revive us this morning. Bring revival to us so that in doing so, we may be your change agents for the world. Oh Lord, we need you to change our world. And Lord, we don't want to sit idly by and watch it change. We want to be on the front lines of the changing of this incredible place that we call earth. And we want to do it for your glory and your grace. Move in us, give us your spirit so that we will not fall to timidity and fear, but that we will speak with power and with sound minds so that you are brought glory, honor, and praise. In Christ's name we pray, amen.